we've been on this journey in Acts, really over a year, trying to understand this letter. And it's important to understand for us that when we read this letter today, we don't get, I would say we get less than maybe 1% of what they would have gotten, those people that were there. Even though we know the story of Jesus, even though we know, we just we don't understand context. Like in something simple as saying they went from Perga to, uh, to Antioch of Pisidia. That little statement means nothing to you and me, but to them it would have meant a lot. And so it's so important for us to understand context. And so remember Luke, is this, this is the second letter he wrote to a guy named uh, Theophilus. The first letter was the Gospel of Luke explaining Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he was about. And Theophilus, more than likely, was a Greek guy. And Luke is writing it, explaining who Jesus is, talking to him about this Jewish Messiah. And, and Acts is just a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. As the same words that Jesus spoke, His apostles spoke. The same acts that Jesus did, His apostles did. And the whole point of it all was that people would recognize that there is a path back to the Garden of Eden relationship that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall. Now that's, that's mind-blowing when you stop and think about it. Because when we think about the Gospel of Jesus, we don't think about that, most of us. Most of us think, well, we can go to heaven when we die. So it's about something that happens we don't even get the benefits of it here. But that was never what it was about. It was about restoring the relationship of man to a pre-fall uh, relationship of intimacy with God the Father in His authoritative role and His protective role in our life. That is incredible news for us. That, that you can go back, think about it. Adam and Eve walked in complete innocence in the Garden of Eden. And Adam did not do anything wrong. Eve didn't do anything wrong in their pre-fall state. The animals in there, nobody was eating one another. There was no death. There was no pain. It was just a pre-fall relationship of intimacy and dependence. And we have access to that. To, to that relational aspect with God, that's what this is all about. And there's one way to get there, and only one way, and His name's Jesus. And when Luke is writing this, those people would have been going, wait a minute. Jesus is an aberration. He said He was a prophet, but He said He was God. There's only one God. There's not God and Jesus. They didn't understand. They saw Christianity as an aberration of Judaism. They saw Jesus as kind of some offshoot sect of Judaism, and that's why the Jewish people rejected Him. That's why they killed Him. They couldn't stand Him. The other people just wrote Him off as a crazy guy and looked at Him as a fringe Jew. But Luke is writing to say, no, it is not an aberration of Judaism. It is true Judaism. That's what God intended from the beginning. That's what we're going to see today. Last week, just as a reminder, we looked at the first uh, 12 verses, first uh, 12 verses of 13, and we saw a vibrant church in the church at Antioch. Remember, Acts is divided into two sections pretty much. One through uh, 12, even though there weren't chapter headings back then, that section is the first half, and it was primarily about the church in Jerusalem. Primarily a Jewish-looking church. Primarily about the ministry of the Apostle Peter. But after Acts 13, is 1, is where it starts to go from Antioch, becomes the center church. That's, that's taking the word out to the rest of the world. Paul and Barnabas become the primary players. Primarily Paul. You don't even read that much about Barnabas anymore. It's primarily Paul. Paul and his companions. Paul and Aristarchus. You know, Paul and Timothy. It's Paul. The Apostle Paul in his ministry. But I find it interesting that, that God chose the church at Antioch to be the sending church 
to the rest of the world to reach Rome, Ephesus, Galatia, all those pagan places, the center cultural places, Alexandria, all those places, the church at Antioch, not the celebrity church in Jerusalem. Think about it for a second. The church in Jerusalem had Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, Simon the Zealot. It had the celebrity leaders. If we were there, that's where we would be. Most people in America, they're going to beat feet to the celebrity church. I want to be where the main guy is. I don't want... Who's Lucius? Who's Simon of Niger? They're, they're both from Roman provinces. I mean, if I got a choice to go to Jerusalem and be under Peter, or go up to Simon of Niger and be up in Antioch, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's the way they think today, right? Isn't that the way we think in America? That's not the way it was. God said, I'm going to use the Antioch church. I'm going to launch the missionary movement out into the world with a bunch of nobodies. In fact, I'm going to take the guy who was the biggest nobody in Christianity, Paul, because he killed Christians, and he's going to be the primary guy at that church. Him and Barnabas. Disciple the guys there. We saw that last week in the four marks, the really the four priorities of a healthy church. What were they? Remember teaching, discipleship, making disciples, prayer and worship, and missions evangelism. They were doing that there because Paul and Barnabas were making disciples. And my friend Tommy Nelson always asked, Who's your men? Doug, who's your men? If you don't have anybody in your life you're building into, at some point you need to start sharing with somebody. God's not making you a disciple to only be a sitter and receiver. He's making you to be a disciple, to be a doer and a giver. And so at some point, you have to pass it on. That's what he says. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul wrote, find faithful men who will find other faithful men that they can pass on the faith to. So, we saw those marks, but what we also saw is Satan attacked with who? With Elemus. 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 Tomato, tomato. You can call him what you want, but it's one of those. And he was a sorcerer. He was a Jewish prophet. He claimed, he claimed to be Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus. A super apostle of Jesus. So he was covering all his bases. Remember that last week for you who are here? And he was attached to who? Sergius Paulus, the leader of that area, Paphos. Kind of like one of the capital areas down there in Cyprus. And uh, Sergius Paulus was sent there by the Roman Senate to oversee it. And Satan put a guy right next to him who was a really a false prophet, but who was so full of contradictions that when he stood next to Paul, it was clear who was telling the truth and who wasn't. Because God gave them evidence of His truth in Paul. And Paul preached the gospel to Sergius Paulus. As far as we know, Sergius Paulus is probably the only one that came to Christ there. There's really no indication that anybody else believed. That may have been why John Mark beat feet. Maybe he goes, man, I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to be around these guys. Who knows why John Mark left? But we see that in the text today. So today we're going to look at 13 through uh, 39. And it's, like I said, Paul's first recorded sermon. He preached other sermons, but this is the first one recorded. And in his sermon, we're going to see God reveal, first of all, the proclamation of His sovereignty over history. And that history is not just Israel history. That's your history. That's my history. He's sovereign. And He makes this proclamation of sovereignty to these people in the synagogue that very much applies to you and me. From the time of your birth, Brad, even little Graham's issues, doesn't matter. He's sovereign over all of it. And, and we see that in the text today during uh, the first part. But he also reveals a provision of his salvation for us. If you, if you went and did a survey out in town and just the first hundred people you went up to and said, hey, do, are you looking for salvation? Do you need to be saved? They'd look at you like you're crazy. Most people operate like they don't need salvation. They don't need to be saved. Oh yeah, I know about Jesus. 
but they're not they're not saved. They're not saved because they, in their minds, are saved from what they think they ought to be saved from, but they're really not saved from what they should be saved from. And so he reveals his God's provision of salvation in this text. And third, he reveals the purpose of his son. What is the purpose of Jesus? Well, it is to save, isn't it? And it's to save from what? He, he brings that out in the text. So it's a great text. And before we get started, I just want to um, remind you that in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is Peter's first sermon that he's recorded there. Acts chapter 7 is who? Stephen's sermon. Acts 13, Paul's sermon. They're almost, it's funny because you see these sermons as almost like you got Peter for the Jews. Stephen really is for the Jews, but it's more of a transition between Peter and Paul. Because who was at Stephen's sermon? Paul was sitting right there. And so Paul stands up now in the synagogue and gives this history of Israel that takes people to Jesus from the text. That's why for people to say, well, you don't need the Old Testament, uh, he takes them right from the Old Testament to Jesus. And so I want to read this verse from Isaiah real quick because again, Christianity is not a breakaway from Judaism. It's not. It is true Judaism. And so Isaiah 46, or I'll start with verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is God's Word about Himself. He's sovereign. And so as we read this, keep in mind the proclamation of His sovereignty. Paul's going into a synagogue and he's proclaiming to people who intellectually knew that, but practically did not let that impact their life. Intellectually, they had been taught it their whole life. Practically, it meant nothing to them. And so he's there proclaiming the gospel to them, starting with the proclamation of God's sovereignty. That's really important. And so as we look at this text, keep that in the back of your mind, starting in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's no mention there of why John left him. There's no, you know, no commentary in the text about why John left him. There's been lots of people that have made guesses at why he left him. Some people think that maybe he was afraid after what happened, the encounter with Sergius Paulus with Elymas. Maybe he got a little spooked by that. Maybe the fact that nobody really responded to the message there in Cyprus discouraged him. I personally think that he might have been a little upset at the transition in leadership. You see, Barnabas, his cousin, was his cousin, that's family, was kind of the guy. He went up, he went and found Paul, brought him to Antioch. Remember where John Mark was from? Jerusalem. He was from a wealthy family in Jerusalem. Very well educated in Jerusalem. Why in the world would this guy from Cilicia, from Tarsus, that part of the world, be given authority over my cousin? Barnabas is the one that kind of opened the door for Paul. But you see a big transition in leadership. Wherever Paul went after this, it's Paul and somebody. Even with Barnabas. It doesn't mention Barnabas first. Prior to this, it's always Barnabas and Paul. After this, it's always Paul and Barnabas. So maybe, maybe John Mark got upset and said, you know what? This guy, he's wanting to go to the Gentiles. I'm going back to Jerusalem. Because that was still an issue. 
Somebody in Jerusalem started it to where James had to address it back in the church of Jerusalem about the Gentile thing. And I don't know who it was, but apparently John Mark just got up and left. And, and it wasn't a good thing in Paul's mind because he wouldn't take him later when he wanted to go. So it says John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Verse 14, but they went on. That's what you got to do, guys. You got to keep going. They went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, that little phrase is thrown in there, guys. <laughs> and for us, that means nothing. But from Perga to Antioch was a hundred miles through the Taurus Mountains. Do you know where the Taurus Mountains are? They're over in Turkey. Back then, and even today, it's tough, dangerous terrain. I mean, sheer cliffs, winding rivers, and like you could fall to your death very easily just navigating over that. A hundred miles on foot. They didn't have cars. They didn't have all-terrain vehicles. They didn't have four-wheelers. They didn't have motorcycles. They walked from Antioch or from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia. And they had to be in danger of robbers. I think over in 2 Corinthians 11 where it says, Paul says, I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger in the wilderness. That's what he was talking about. But you'd never know that because Luke just makes a passing statement. They went from Perga to Antioch. Guys, being a Christian follower of Jesus is hard. We just want to do a podcast in our living room on a couch and not do anything. God says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say where He would take us, but it's anywhere, anytime, anything. And that's the mentality they had. They went on from Perga, came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Now after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Well, you don't say that to a preacher because a preacher is going to pop up right away. Because we always got messages in our back pocket ready to share. And Paul was ready. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. And for about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. And all, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. Are you, are you getting this, guys? Mm -hmm. Who, who's the person who's doing all this? It ain't the Israelites. All this took about 450 years. After that, He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my, all my will. He makes a distinction there between Saul and David. And the difference was David did all the will of the Lord. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. There He is. He's bringing Jesus into the message now. Everybody would have been great up to this point. But the moment He said this, now people are starting to shuffle in their seats a little bit. Whoa, wait a minute. What's he, where's He going with this? Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He, no. But behold, after Me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's specific about salvation there. It's a specific salvation. It's not what they thought. It's not what you and I think most of the time. It's not what we've been brought up to think. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree, they laid Him in a tomb. But... God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to who? The fathers. This he's fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, He says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. May God bless His Word. We, we see God's proclamation of His sovereignty in Paul's message here because who's speaking through Paul? God is. This is a mistake we make a lot of times when we hear anybody preaching God's Word. If, if, if God is not speaking to, through somebody, I don't want to listen to Him. I mean, basically, the Apostle Paul was sharing truth of Scripture that other people had enlightened him with. This is why, guys, it's so important if somebody goes, hey, we're going to this church and this pastor, he's sharing stuff nobody's ever heard in Scripture before. You better run. Because throughout time, it's the faithful men who've passed along the faithful truths of Scripture that keep getting passed on to other people. And this is Christianity, you know, is from... The church fathers, Abraham, if he was here today, would be considered a Christian. He was a person of faith. And so, verse 13, I mentioned John leaves, we see that. Verse 14, I talked about Perga to Antioch. But notice in verse 15 what happens. Actually, verse 14, chapter 13, chapter 13, but look in verse 14 at the end, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. That's what you did. Sabbath, you go through. There was an order of service in every synagogue. It was the same. First thing they did, you know what it was? Anybody? Shema. Yes. It was the Shema. It was what we pray at the end of our things. The first thing they do. They say the Shema and then they pray together. That's the first thing they do. Then they have prayer. Then they have Scripture read. The first Scripture is read from the Pentateuch, one of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. The next Scripture that is read is from the prophets. They're on a three-year cycle to finish all the readings of the Pentateuch and the prophets. And so they read a prescribed reading. Then, after they have the reading... Uh, they have instruction. Whoever reads it, some, generally an elder from that village or from, the, from that area will read and then give some instruction, kind of a, a homily or some testimony about that text. 
Then if there's a guest who's passing through that seems competent, that seems like they might be able to share, they will invite them to speak to it. And then they close out with a blessing. That's the service. And so they turn to Paul. Hey, brother, do you have a word of encouragement? He looked like a rabbi. More than likely, he was a Pharisee. He probably looked like a holy guy. Like a guy who cared about the things of God. So they ask him, would you share? And what does he say? He stood right up. Of course he did. He was waiting for that moment. He knew what the drill was. He was waiting for that to happen. And as soon as it did, he popped up. And what does he say? He said something he addresses almost three times in this text. Men of Israel and you who fear God. Men of Israel and you who fear God. The God-fearers. They were, they were proselyte uh, converts to Judaism. Circumcised, but these were people normally that were not Jewish by blood. They became Jewish and converted to Ju- Judaism. So he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. And then he goes in to the history of Israel. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Guys, there is no reason you should have a problem with God choosing you or anybody else for that matter. It just says God chose our fathers. I don't know why that's such a big deal for people today who struggle with that. God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers in what? And He made the people great. Why? He was putting His name on display. God did not bless Israel just for the sake of Israel. He blessed Israel for the sake of His great name. He wanted the world to see a witness of what it looked like to walk in intimacy with the one true living God. And so, verse uh, 17, He starts off by talking about the fathers. Where is He going there? Well, that's Genesis, guys. Who did He make the promise to? Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great land. Through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So, He's given us a history lesson on Genesis. But then, what does He do next? He goes down. He says, and made the people great during their stay. Where? In the land of Egypt. How did they get to Egypt, by the way? Yeah, they were there because there was a famine in the land. Who controlled the famine? Who told Pharaoh there was going to be a famine? No, God did through Joseph. It wasn't Joseph. Remember what Joseph said? No man can tell you this, but God can do it. Right? Because Joseph... Yeah, exactly. Because they recognized where it came from. See, we think the way we think, we think about men. God's men think about God. He's the source of everything. And so, there's a man who can tell you because he knows God. And God revealed it to him. So, we're still in Genesis, but we're moving to Exodus. Notice what he says next. And he, the God of this people made them great during their stay in Egypt, and with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. That's the Exodus. How long were they there? 400 years. He's going to tell us about that in a second. But now He's taking us through Exodus in verse 17. And for about 40 years, He put them in the wilderness. That's verse 18. Where is that? 40 years in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers, guys. That's the, that's the book of Numbers. How much time do you spend in the book of Numbers? Very little. I hope. Yeah. So... So he's giving them a history lesson here, going back in the same way Peter did and Stephen did. And then he says, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. What book is that? That's Joshua. He's just taking them through the text. Like Stephen did. Yeah, and they are they're loving it. Why? Because that's their history. The problem with the Jews, though, they believed that their history was what saved them. They believed their lineage is what saved them. And so he's taking them through, and they love that. 
They didn't understand that the lineage was to point to who? Jesus. And so, he takes them. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. That's 400 years in the, Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 10 years conquering the land of Canaan. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, he's brought them into the book of Judges. Would you know that book, what it was really about? <laughs> I love Tommy. Uh, Nelson says, it, Judges is old guys didn't teach young guys what they shouldn't know about God. That's the bottom line. You see this cycle of blessing, turning from God in sin, and then God bringing judgment through a Gentile nation. The people cry out, God raises up a judge. You see that cycle going over and over and over. Do we, do we cycle like that? God bless us, we turn away from Him. We tend to take Him for granted. Then He brings some kind of discipline into our life. We cry out to Him. He delivers and we do the cycle all again, right? Hopefully not the same way. Hopefully we're growing in maturity. But that's what you see in Judges. And then we see in 1 Samuel, in verse 21, then they asked for a king. You know why Israel asked for a king? They had Samuel. Who was Samuel? He was a preacher. They didn't want a preacher. They didn't want a prophet. They wanted a political leader like the, like the nations around them. That's what they asked for. And God gave it to them. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful where you look for your power and your deliverance. Because they asked for it, God gave it. And here's the thing. You know what? A lot like today, um, <laughs> we want God's blessing, but we don't want to be accountable to Him. That's what they, 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 they didn't want to be accountable to Samuel sitting up there telling them what God said. Every time a prophet would speak, there was accountability. And they didn't want that. They just wanted blessings. They just wanted a leader like the other nations that would give them protection. They had a leader. His name was Yahweh. But they wanted a human figurehead. And so God gave them that. But then it says, notice, when He had removed Him, you know why he removed him? Because he didn't do what he told him to do. And then he gave him a chance to repent, and he still didn't do what he told him to do. He didn't repent. He had a hard heart. He had a broken dream instead of a broken heart. And so it says he raised up David to be their king. And why did he do that? Because David was a man after his own heart, and it said, He will do all my will. Now you think about David and the first thought pops in here, wait a minute, he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. My gosh, he killed Uriah. But what did he do when he was confronted about that with Nathan? He repented. And you see his heart of repentance when you go to Psalm 51 and you read, Lord, create in me a clean heart. God, I, I, I've blown it. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Amen. You don't hear Saul praying that prayer. Paul's saying, Samuel, come walk with me. Come on, Samuel, walk with me so they'll still think I, I got God's favor. No, two different people. But notice who's sovereign in all. Who removed Saul? Who put David in? God. Who gave the people blessing? God. Over and over in Judges, He did it. I know everything, God was the source of it all. And He brings us to David for a reason. Because He says, of this Man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Now, the rubber meets the road. Paul brings Jesus to the forefront because that's what it's all about. The whole point of all of Scripture is that statement right there. It's about Jesus. Jesus is not a departure from true Judaism. Jesus is true Judaism. Right? I mean, and that's what he's trying to bring out. And so he, he, he goes out and he tells him, he says, listen, now there was even a guy that was prophesied that would make, path, make the path straight, and that was John the Baptist. It was Elijah who would come preparing the way. And we see that in verse 24. John the Baptist. He did a baptism of repentance, which basically meant 
It w- it, the baptism of repentance was not the end of Judaism. It was preparing people for the fulfillment of it. And how was it fulfilled? In Jesus. Everything God told His people to do was looking forward to Jesus. And John, when people said, are you Him? Are you the guy? We see His humility. No, he go, I'm not the guy. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Boy, I think we could all learn, me included, from John in that way. I, I just think probably one of the greatest dangers for anybody standing and opening up God's Word and proclaiming His truth is to somehow think you have anything to do with it. That's a danger. And Dave Wilbert, you've counseled lots of guys. You've seen it in its ugly form, haven't you? I mean, we, we, we all have. How many preachers fall left and right who believe their own press reports? Believe they're the ones that are doing anything. It's just God's mercy and grace. And, and John says, it's not me. I'm not him. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. I, I, it's not me. So Paul is now taking them from Abraham through John the Baptist all the way to Jesus. And what does he do? He says in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Again, he addresses them. This is a personal message for them that he's he's addressing to them. And now he's going to give them the provision of his salvation. He says, To us has been sent the message of what? Not just salvation. This salvation. The salvation of Jesus. Why is that important? Why did they not recognize Him in verse 27? Why did they not understand the prophecies? They heard Him every time they went to synagogue. Why did they misunderstand the message of this salvation? The one they thought? about instead of the one that was the true salvation? Well, because their salvation they were looking for was political. They wanted to be delivered from Rome. They wanted to have great financial blessings. They did not understand, guys, that the problem wasn't political. It was sin. That was the problem that God had. Our message today isn't that God's going to deliver us from whatever the Romans are in our life. The message is He will deliver us from us. You see, people think God delivers them from alcohol or drugs or pornography. Those aren't the issues. Those are symptoms. The problem is you and me. See, we want to be our own leader. That was the problem in the Garden of Eden. Who was the leader? It was God. It was God the Father of Adam and Eve, he led them everywhere. He told them what they could do, told them what not to do. Before the fall, they enjoyed perfect intimacy with the Father. And they were dependent with the Father. And somewhere along the line, we got the idea that the message was getting a ticket stamp to get on a train to go to heaven. That's what it's about. Yeah, I believe that, so I'm on board with that. Oh, accountability? To live under His rule? I'm not going to do that. I'm my own boss. Oh, I'll do it if it's convenient. Want to go on a mission trip, Brad? We talked about that, right? First thing most people say, nah, I can't go. They don't say, well, I wonder what God wants me to do. I'm going to check. Who, who, who do you follow? True believers are under the leadership of God Almighty, Yahweh, Elohim. There, there's no bargaining with God over who leads your life. If you're His. When He sent Jesus, that was a sin payment. It was an adoption payment to bring you into relationship that was pre-fall in the garden of dependence and His, His power and His authority. And somewhere along the way, well, you know, we give Jesus a try like we try alcohol. Or we try anything else. Might as well give him a try. That's terrible theology. Don't give him a try. You don't give him a try like he's some fad. He's the God of the universe. 
He gave us all this. He, he's outlined it through history. Some of you people in this room are His that He's drawn to you. The very reason you're sitting here today is because He said, I'm your dad and I want you in relationship with me. No, maybe not, Jeff. I mean, I would hope that. I would hope that. But the truth of the matter is, very few people really embrace Him in that way. And you can't take 90% God, you give Him your heart and say, okay, God, I'm giving you 90% of this part of my heart, but this 10% over here, mm, I ain't letting go of it. I'm not letting go. That doesn't mean you're perfect. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about understanding that when you come into relationship with God, Yahweh, you come into a relationship that has been a covenant with Him and man that He started with Abraham. He went through David and He said, I'm sending My Son Jesus to fulfill it, to bring you in back into a pre-fall dependent state with Me. Now, I'm just going to tell you, most people don't teach that. It is taught because I people have taught me. But the vast majority of people in this country operate under a very different skewed view of salvation that is very man-centered instead of God-centered. That's why it's important. His sovereignty. But that's what Paul's saying to them. This salvation is for you. And he says, listen... Verse 28, He was perfect. Why? They found in Him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of Him, where was it written? In the Scriptures. They took Him down from the tree, laid Him in a tomb. Why? Just like Paul wrote later in 1 Corinthians. He what? He died. This is the Gospel of first importance. He died according to the Scriptures. It wasn't a failure. He wasn't some offshoot of Judaism. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. God laid it out in the Scriptures. So He died, Paul says, according to the Scriptures. But notice verse 30. It says, but God. I love that in Scripture. But God raised Him from the dead. Why? Just like Paul wrote in the Scriptures. He raised Him from the dead according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied. Verse 32, what does it say? And we bring you the good news. Why, did, why is Paul bringing the good news? Go back to verse 31. He says, He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now His witnesses to the people. Once you've received it, you go and give it. That's the purpose of you receiving it. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that we bring you the good news. Remember that word euangelion? It's the same word used in Romans 10. It said, how shall they know? And if they haven't heard, how are they to hear? How beautiful are the feet that bring what? Euangelion, the good news. And if you go to Isaiah 52, it tells what the good news is. It is our God reigns. Our God reigns. Whether you believe it or not. Our God reigns. That is the good news. What, and notice what he says. That what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Now this is interesting that he goes into the second psalm here because most people think about the second psalm in relation to Jesus' birth. But he's talking about the resurrection. And you know why? Because... The second psalm, what happened in the east when an eastern king would step down and his son, a prince, would reign, this statement was said, Today you are my son. Today you are my son. And I have, today I've begotten you. That statement was very common when a king would step down and a prince would take over. So that's not just some random thing he said when he was born. And he's making the application here that when he was resurrected, he began his reign. He began to reign. And so, when you see in uh, verse 9 of Philippians 2, 
it say God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That what? Jesus Christ is Master. Jesus Christ reigns. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. Jeremiah 33 was one of the prophecies. Jeremiah 33, verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Jesus not raised from the dead, that promise doesn't get fulfilled. For one of the things I I, I, uh, I didn't bring out the David the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel seven. Remember David wanted to build a house for God. What what was the purpose of God's house? His tabernacle, his temple. What was the purpose of it? It, it was worship but it was a place for His name to dwell. And David wanted to build him a house, so he said, Lord, I want to build you a place. I've got this nice house. And he says, no, David. I'm going to build a house out of you. I'm going to build a house out of you, David. My, my name's going to dwell in you. And that's what he did in the Davidic covenant in Jesus And we see the purpose of His Son. He says in verse 38, let it be known again, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, He's not an aberration of Judaism, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You can be forgiven no matter what's happened. No matter what you've done. He makes a personal appeal that through Jesus there's forgiveness. In verse 39, notice He says, by Him, everyone... No distinction of any group. Everyone who believes. That belief there means a belief that produces an action. It's not a temporary belief. It's not just a temporal assent to the facts. It is a trust in Jesus. Not just what He did, but a trust in Him is freed from everything the law couldn't do. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That we can be restored We can be forgiven and restored to the right relationship with God. The pre-fall relationship in the garden. The intimacy with God that Adam and Eve had before the fall. I know we don't think that way. We're too sophisticated to think that way. We're too smart to think that way. But that's why God says a little child can understand it. You see, it was never meant to be brainy. That's why he says, I will choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It's about him. And so he created you and me, guys, for a dependent relationship, that pre-fall type of relationship. But because of our selfishness and our sinfulness and our our desire to lead our own life, we say, no, God, you're not going to lead my life. Oh, I believe in the facts about Jesus, but that's, that's for somebody more mature than me. Really? If a general in the Marine Corps tells you to do something and you're not a general, you're underneath him, you don't get to tell him whether you do it or not. Sorry, general, I'm not going to do that. That don't work out too well. Well, God's got a lot more authority than a general in the Marine Corps. He's the God of the universe. But because of our rebellion, that relationship is broken and God condemned everyone Everyone to hell apart from one thing. One thing that would keep us from being eternally separated from Him. And that's His Son, Jesus. It's the only thing. Jesus Christ, who lived and died, did the miracles to authenticate who He was, said, I'm going to die three days later. I'm going to rise again. God did that to show that He was who He said He was and then took that message to the world. And we're here in a room today, thousands of years later, studying about it because there are people here that need to hear that message. Me being one of them. I need it. I want it. 
There's nothing more important than that message right there. No amount of money could you give me to walk away from my king. Amen. There's nothing you could offer me that would make me walk away from my king. The question is, is he your king? I wish I could play Lockridge's message right now. He's my king, do you know him? People, you know, it's just a fabulous thing. But I hope before you leave today and get in your car and drive out and put your life out there in the world that you would leave with this in mind, that He gives everybody the opportunity to respond. But the response is yours. I can't do it for you. You can't do it because somebody else does it. You have to really embrace Him for who He is on the basis of His Word on the basis of the Spirit moving in you and understanding. If you want to talk, I'm happy to talk. Brad will talk to you. There's a lot of guys in here that can talk to you. Amos will talk to you. Dave Wilbur. There's a lot of guys that can talk to you about this stuff. But don't live another day outside of that pre-fall intimacy with God. I'm telling you, it's the best feeling in the world. Father, thank You for the reminder again of this truth of the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the hope that we have in Him. I pray right now if there's anybody here today, Lord, who has maybe been in church or maybe uh, heard about Jesus, they've embraced some element of Jesus, but they've never bowed their heart to His Lordship, that today would be the day they yield and say, I'm His. I'm His. I want this salvation I want this salvation, the salvation that, that Paul proclaimed, the salvation that Jesus proclaimed, the salvation, Lord, that I hear you calling me to today. Save me from myself. Let me be under your leadership. Thank you for Jesus and the cross. Just tell him in your own words where you are that. And if you're already His, but you have been distracted, maybe like John Mark, maybe you just wanted to beat feet and get out of town and not do what maybe God had called you to, He can forgive that. He ended up doing it with John Mark and restoring him. I just pray that uh, if that's you, that you would acknowledge maybe areas of disobedience and then ask Him to strengthen you to obey Him and then walk in confidence that He loves you and His love overcomes everything. Lord, hear our prayer today. Thank You for uh, this time. Amen. Amen.